0: The Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports.
1: Today's edition of the Spot Track Podcast is presented by The Athletic. Visit TheAthletic.com slash SpotTrack, S P O T R A C in your browser. Get yourself 40% off that first year. Download the app, personalize it with your favorite themes, and get exclusive ad free content at your fingertips. That's TheAthletic.com slash Spot Track. My name is Mike Giannetti. Happy Thursday. Big NFL show followed by a small Major League Baseball show. I'm going to open up with some Deshaun Watson comments. It's been uh, a minute. I've been reluctant to do that, but things are swinging in a bunch of different directions right now, and I'm getting a lot of questions that I really want to put some answers to. And while I don't have you know, specifics, I don't think anybody does at this point with the allegations that continue to pile out here, but I'm going to speak to the contract itself and, and some scenarios that could unfold. Some uh, some nuggets from Mike Floria, a pro football talk who's been, Really closely in touch with the contract and and how things could grow. So, uh, I do a decent segment on all the opportunities, I guess, right? What happens if the NFL comes down now? What happens if they wait? What happens if things get into 2023? And then, actually, after 2023, there's some interesting nuggets in that contract to unfold as well. So, Deshaun Watson at first. Then I dive into Aaron Rodgers, who made some Aaron Rodgers y type comments about his future, about Green Bay. And I'm going to relate that to the contract because uh, I did this before, but I just kind of checked up on things to make sure that the contract that I had assessed was in line with the comments he was making. And what does that mean financially for him? What does that mean for the Packers? What does that mean after this year, after next year, things like that. So a quick uh, update on Aaron Rodgers' future in Green Bay. And then is the salary cap real? (laughs) It's, uh, that's going to be your hot buzz phrase right now, and maybe for the rest of this summer, because of all the movement that the Saints were able to do over the past few years. Certainly, what the Rams have done, certainly what Tampa Bay has done since Brady caught in the town. Um, you know, that's just kind of the going conversation right now with a lot of different ways to manipulate it gymnastics, mechanisms, blah, blah, blah. I have a pretty easy answer for you. And uh, I do relate it to the Rams and I do relate it to why they're able to do what they, they are able to do. And look, the Rams and the Saints and, and teams that kind of do business that way, they're not doing the same thing, All right. One is very regimented in their process and one is extremely open and creative and fluid. So I kind of understand those two paths, break down some specific examples of why the Rams are here and why they're probably not done. And that's, uh, that's my take on really the salary cap as a whole. So if you have any confusions about that, even after listening to the segment at spot on Twitter, I'm happy to answer the questions about bonus prorations and dead cap and, and think void years and all that stuff that's now been rolled into kind of common conversation with these NFL contracts, but I'll spoil it, right? I'll bury the lead. It's real. It's real, but it is a, but it is one element of NFL finances. That's it it is not the hard and fast. It is a hard salary cap that has ramifications in other areas of the game, financially speaking. So I kind of allude to all those with specifics tied to the Rams as well in the back end of the show. And then Cousin Dan, because I got to get some baseball, I got to get my fix pretty much every week here. He's done a great, a great job assessing some trade candidates. It's June. We've got about six weeks before that that major league baseball trade deadline. Teams are kind of rounding into form here. We kind of understand at least divisionally who's who. So some buyer-seller conversations here and a couple of players that should be at the top of the conversation in terms of trades come August. All right. For those of you who listen to this show regularly, you know I've been reluctant to go down this path, but I do think it's time to talk to Sean Watson just a little bit because I'm getting plenty of questions about the contract and what could happen and what are the options and yada yada and i get it because certainly what we saw this past weekend from the new york times and what was a damaging piece i don't know what it means for the legal part of it but there's a lot more there and i think that's the point that i want to address the most is the more there mike florio at pro football talk who is as much lawyer as he is you know clickbait NFL reporter working his butt off every single day. He's got a couple of great publications here as he keeps up with this as much as possible. And he has seen the contract. And I'm going to piggyback off of what he's been saying and he's been publishing here. Because it's it's the angle that he's taken is as important to the contract as anything. It's important to the, the Browns' future with that contract as anything. So very quickly, again, I will uh, tweet out the articles that I've referenced here quite a bit here from pro football talk but we all know that there's protections into this contract so just quickly with this with this 2022 situation it's the minimum 1 million dollar salary and a 45 million dollar signing bonus give or take a few 46 million dollars of compensation everybody knows that most people hate it <laughs> okay honestly that's the way these contracts work though the protections Come from, they stem from an addendum, an amendment that was placed into this thing. And there is a piece of this which Mike Florio points out that we don't have visible evidence of. But the contract references a written statement basically saying these are the terms of the protections, these are the specifics of the protections. We know what is protected, we know that the base salaries, the guarantees on them cannot be voided. We know that the signing bonus cannot be repaid. What we don't know is under what conditions do these protections lie? And what Mike has done a good job of referencing, and I agree completely, does the written statement say it's for the initial 22 civil lawsuits? Because if it's that specific, and it's to the point of, I won't be convicted for this, there won't be any uh, additional wrongdoing. With these 22 cases, then there's a problem now, because now 23 and 24 are out. Now there's numbers in the 60s from the New York Times. There's 18 cases that were not brought to court, but have been referenced that I believe he's going to have to speak to in court. There's a lot of exterior things happening here alongside those original 22 civil lawsuits. So if the protections are that specific and there's reason to believe that they are, then the contract is not as lock and key as was originally reported, right? Because now there are reasons to get around it and to poke holes in it. I'll give you my assessment on that in a second here based on what the Browns have said, which is very little, but uh, I'm going to read the tea leaves a little bit there. But that's the gist of what we're talking about here with the contract, all right? So what could happen to Deshaun Watson from a, from a league standpoint? Because the answer has been nothing. And that's referencing back to last year. Keep in mind, nothing that happens with the Browns right now and with Deshaun Watson's suspension is going to have anything to do with last year. The fact that he missed last year was his decision. He was basically quitting on the Houston Texans. I'm not going to play for you. I don't like this front office. I don't want to be here. I'm going to wait until you trade me and I'm never going to play another snap for you. He sat with a clipboard, made $11 million. And that was that last year. It had nothing to do with what was going on. And by the way, now that we see the Houston Texans impact in that New York times article and how they were basically facilitating and setting up and you know, kind of adjudicating this entire thing with NDAs and, and private rooms and Direct message contact and all sorts of this. Uh, they're not out of the weeds by any means. And in fact, they're coming into the courtroom, the Houston Texans. So last year is last year in terms of his suspendable entities, right? It's not going to be time served. Let's put it that way. So what could happen? Well, option A is the option that I've been clamoring for for a long time here because, quite frankly, every other player in the league that has gone through this sort of we don't know, right? Undetermined situation, especially when there's legal courts involved. Roger Goodell has used the commissioner's exempt list and said, look, we're just going to protect the team. We're just going to protect the the public relations here. Let's be honest. And we're going to get him on a list. He's still going to get paid, but he's on a list now where he no longer is a part of the conversation for the Browns right now. And that's probably the biggest reason he's not on this list. The second you are placed on the commissioner's exempt list, you cannot train with the team. You cannot be around the team. You are basically on paid leave. Many, op- many occupations do this, right? So he can't be working out with the Browns and all that. So the Browns may be the ones saying, no, no, please don't do this. He's going to get his money anyway. He might as well be training with us right now. We'll take the PR hit. There's a good chance that the Browns are saying no to Roger Goodell, even though they really can't do that, but are pushing for him to stay off this list. I believe that list is where he belongs because there have been plenty of cases similar to this, different ramifications and different legal aspects, but that's where he belongs right now. That is the league protecting themselves, their team, the owner, blah, blah, blah. Obviously, the league could just suspend him too. I think there's enough conduct detrimental to team and league that has been put out there. And I'm right. None of it has to do with a conviction or an indictment. It is just simply public relations. And you can say that's part of social media. That's the world we live in. Things are going to snowball in an hour and a half now because of what the, the world we live in and the generation we live in. And there's pros and cons to it. And this can be a con, but the league has taken so much now and they've had to avoid so many questions. At what point are they just going to say enough is enough? Now, most teams are breaking for summer vacation right now until about, you know, training camp mid July. So does the league just say we can walk away from this today? And the New York times bombshell is, is just going to find its way into the back, back page at some point. And we can come back in July and have a definitive answer because the court system will play itself out and we can just kind of piggyback off of them. That's, Absolutely what I think the league will do because that's what the league tends to do constantly is let other people figure it out and then they become the reaction to it. So I don't believe a suspension is in order. Even though the similarities between this situation and Trevor Bauer's situation with the Dodgers, I mean, it's all kind of sitting there in front of you. And Major League Baseball decided, even though there's no criminal law, you know, Indictment for Trevor Bauer, even though he's, he was basically that stuff was kind of thrown out. It got to the point where they didn't want him on a mound in a Dodgers uniform right now with the baggage attached to him, because even if it wasn't criminally wrong what he had done, it was wrong enough to the point of where they didn't want him to be one of the faces of Major League Baseball right now. And in fact, they said for two years. We need a two-year gap on Trevor Bauer to let this thing run its course. You can have an opinion one way or another on that. But Major League Baseball, who, by the way, is never this proactive, did that a couple of weeks ago. And the NFL could have just said, well, we're going to follow that suit. And it's gotten to the point now where the guy sat out last year because he was in battle with his current team, a team that was aiding and abetting the mess that we're in right now. And now we've had six months of massive contract, massive trade, and now massive, you know, wrongdoings, essentially. Assumed, allegated wrongdoings. That's plenty to suspend a player indefinitely for conduct. Plenty. So I don't think they'll do it. I think they're going to let things run its course. Which means, by the way, and I'm not going to knock the Browns for doing this, Sean Watson may be the week one starting quarterback for the for the Cleveland Browns if the NFL continues to sit in their hands. Why? Because we just had another case come up two days ago. There's plenty of other women who probably want their voices heard, don't yet exactly know how to bring themselves into the conversation, but you know that that the lawyers in this case are 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 constantly trying to add and add and add for a lot of reasons. Not the most important is to get the women's voices out there and get get them their right doings as needed, but this could drag on. This could continue to go and go and go. Which means if the league is just going to let the legal process go before they make any definitive decisions, why wouldn't he be the week one starting quarterback for the Browns? So that's option three. And I think, and I'm going to placate off that. My assessment right now is that the league will not be proactive and that we will get to a point where things are in limbo. And Deshaun Watson is the week one quarterback for the Browns. Let's say we're there. All right. And even if he gets suspended midway through because the court system finalizes some things or the NFL finally says enough is enough. At that point in time, and I'm doing it now, my attention is now to 2023. Because quite frankly, any kind of suspension in 2022 is a joke anyway, from a financial standpoint, from a contractual standpoint. We know that the minimum salary is minimum salary. He's going to forfeit him at most 1.03 million of that salary for missing all of this year, which I don't believe is about to happen. So let's point ourselves to 2023. Because if you look at the contract, you're going to see a $46 million base salary there. And now we're talking, right? Now the average Joe is going to look at that and say, all right, 46 million, it's an 18 weeks league year. That's $2.5 million per week missed. If he's suspended for at least half of that, now that's 32 million bucks, or excuse me, 23 million bucks out the door. Significant losses for Deshaun Watson because of the suspension. If this thing pushes off and then gets to next season, except he's carrying a 55 million dollar cap hit right now with the Browns. The NFL, uh, the highest cap hit in the history of the NFL, is right now Ryan Tannehill, 38 million, ever. <laughs> so. We're talking seventeen million dollars more than any cap it has ever been in Cleveland or in the NFL history, which means there's going to be a restructure, and by restructure I mean some of that forty-six million, maybe most of it, is going to get converted to signing bonus. And again, and I'm, and I'm piggybacking off of Mike Florio's work here. If this means that any signing bonus is protected under under that a- agreement, then. If they convert 44.8 million, which is the maximum they can convert, into signing bonus, and his base salary is the minimum 1.165, now we're right back where we are right now, which is you can suspend me, but I'm still making 45 million dollars next year, and you can take away my 300 thousand dollars, or 400 and 500 thousand dollars, for half a season missed. That's where we are. All right, so. And oh, by the way, maybe the most important thing that that Pro Football Talk brought up here in that contract is the void protections, the amendment that was built in to override the conduct suspensions, only applies to 2022 and 2023. If he is suspended thereafter, if he is suspended in March of 2024 or after, any future guarantees can void. We go right back to the default rules, which is suspension for conduct detrimental, voids any future guarantees immediately. So based on what Florio has laid out here, the contract is only built in for these these next two seasons, the current 2022 and next year's 2023. So if this thing really drags out and he's suspended in 2024, right? If, they, For instance, if they pop him for 2023 and 2024 to kind of follow the Trevor Bauer situation, he may get paid 2023. In terms of a signing bonus, if that happens, but he won't get 2024. That will void. So there's going to be a million more lawyers. There's going to be a million more back and forths and arbitrations and all this stuff. But he, I want to get to my concluding thoughts on this because I have at least read slash heard Andrew Barry, the Browns GM, discuss this a little bit. Obviously, he's not saying much, and you can understand why. But if I'm reading his tea leaves right now the Browns don't seem super concerned. And I don't think the, the lack of concern is that they don't believe Deshaun Watson is guilty of anything or that Deshaun Watts, Watson is going to be free of suspension. My assessment is they know exactly what they were doing when they structured this contract and that yes, there's going to be some money that's paid out that they wish they would, didn't have to pay out. But it's not going to be $230 million. They know exactly where the loopholes are in this thing. They know exactly how to get around this thing. I'm confident at least having like I said reading these tea leaves that this will not be 230 million dollars in this in the hand of somebody who gets suspended for a, a significant amount of time whether it's through one season whether it's through two. But I'm confident that the Browns have this figured out and that they didn't just throw everything into this contract to get their quarterback. They certainly have to have an out. They have to. All right? It's just too reckless to not have one. However, is the 230 million even really the talking point here? Right, these are monstrous rich owners. Maybe the richest owners in all sports. Only getting richer as these as these uh, new owners come in. Right, Denver Broncos. These people are ridiculously rich. So to throw a price tag like that around is a lot of money, and it's crazy money. But these owners have it. What they won't have. And what the Browns are not getting back is three firsts, a third, and two fourths. And two of those picks have already vested. The 2022 first and the 2022 fourth. Houston's already used them. That's never coming back. And also, this is a hell of a good team. Okay, so what about the QB1 position? What if option one happens and he's he's commissioner's exempt list listed and Baker Mayfield refuses to play? which is perfectly, you know, that's going to (laughs) happen. Let's put it that way. And they're stuck with Jacoby Brissett. So they recklessly traded and signed a quarterback that they knew was going to be in this position. This is maybe worse than they assumed, but they knew they were going to be in this position right now at least. They put themselves in the Baker Mayfield position because of the timing and the way they handled the end of last year and, the, and certainly earlier this offseason. They traded away Case Keenum to Buffalo, no less, right? One of, their, one of the AFC rivals. Case Keenum would have been a perfectly plausible fallback situation to this. And then they signed Jacoby Brissett to like 5 million guaranteed, who there's like a 75% chance he is the quarterback for this team indefinitely now that we're looking at the rest of the, of the options. And he hasn't shown anything in two and a half years. He got a one-year basically trial period in Indy after after Andrew Luck, was extended kind of out of good faith, but never really held any kind of ship down. You know, he's not carrying an offense. There's no way he was a better option than Case Keenum, in my opinion. So in my opinion, they've shot themselves in the foot at this position, the most important position, four times this offseason. One, with the recklessness to Deshaun's situation, two, with the carelessness of Baker three with the, it just, I, it, I can't even explain why they would trade Case Keenum knowing it's not like any of this is new. The Watson stuff was there. The Baker stuff was percolating, if not exploding in, at the very moment this was happening. And they just said, ah, oh, we're just going to figure it out with Brissett. He's a perfectly, perfectly plausible, you know, six week quarterback for us. I just don't agree. If you're all into win, Knowing that option four is probably going to be option one and that's your option four, then it's just the wrong move. The wrong move. You had a guy who knew the offense in Case Keenum who was winning ball games for you last year when Baker was trying to fight through that injury and you handed him away to Buffalo for a nothing pick. You just handed him away. So I, I think they've shot themselves in the foot four times and they're going to take a lot of heat for this as it, as it goes and goes and goes. And to me, the league is where we have to have this discussion because they have the chance here to be proactive and that does not sound like the NFL. <laughs> Two more NFL discussions. I'm going to talk Aaron Rodgers. I don't think his comments are getting in enough discussion. And I realize he is the king of stirring the pot. He is the passive-aggressive lord, right? I mean, he knows exactly what he's saying, why he's saying it, when he's saying it. The comment about, I want to be a Packer for life, I just don't know how long that's going to be, and specifically, we'll have to readdress things next offseason. Yeah, it got people talking a little bit about retirement and blah, 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 and the Packers. He said something to the effect of, the Packers will have to trade me to get me out of here. Well, that's true. If you remember, I had some great discussions about Mash and from the Atlantic. I had some great internal discussions with Andrew Brandt, former Packers uh, executive who follows the team closely and is dialed in on Aaron Rodgers specifically and what he's looking for, even at this stage of his career, and what the finances mean. And and he and I had a pretty evolved discussion about this contract. And I clarified some things with Joel Corey, our our salary cap expert friend, just to confirm what I was thinking, which is this is a one-year contract. I understand it's 101 guaranteed at signing and 160 million, 150.8 million fully guaranteed over three. I understand those numbers and they exist on SpotTrack and I'm looking at them right now. What I'm also looking at is $42 million cash this year, a a basically minimum salary and a $40.8 million roster bonus, which was converted into a signing bonus for cap purposes. And that's a really important part of this conversation. All right especially after piggybacking this off of the Watson structure situation. The fact that that was a roster bonus, fully guaranteed at signing, which means you have to prorate it like a signing bonus. But the fact that it was considered a roster bonus, contractually speaking, means that the Packers can't recoup it. So if he retires, if he walks away December 31st or whatever it's going to be, and says, it's been great, it's been real, wish I could have won more Super Bowls, but I'm, I'm riding off into the sunset I'm going. I'm going to be an actor, whatever it's going to be. That $42 million his, okay? Even though there's 33 in change of proration left that Green Bay will have to eat as dead cap, okay? If it was a true signing bonus, they could have gone after that $33 million and said, you got to pay it back to us. You, you were tired before we were able to vest that cap. Happens all the time. It was a conversation with Brady. It was a conversation with Andrew Luck. Now they decided not to recoup in Indy as a good faith process. But the Packers don't have a choice here because that's a roster bonus, not a signing bonus. So that's point number one. Point number two is all the option bonuses and things like that guarantee so early that Green Bay really doesn't have a choice here. They don't. It's on him. It's, it was always going to be on him. But even the contract, even the, the leverage that Green Bay had, which was, we're going to pay you top dollar, but, but we're going to structure things our way. They didn't even get that. They got it structured his way. All right. If he wants to play somewhere else, Green Bay is going to have to trade him immediately because things vest, option bonus vest. They're going to want to push as much to the next team as possible. So there's not going to be any waiting around. It's going to be the Stafford, Russell Wilson situation on steroids. You know, which is kind of new in mid February where, where both those guys were going. It's going to be right there with, with Aaron Rodgers. If Aaron Rodgers is going to I don't know, San Francisco next year, let's just say that's how this works out. We're going to know immediately. And Green Bay is going to have to move, up, move on this thing immediately. And there's going to be a huge chunk of dead cap sitting on them immediately. All right. To the tune of 40.3 million of pre-6-1 dead cap to trade him early next March. So that's what, the, what what we're looking at. If this is really one and done, it's $42 million for Rodgers this year, which is absurd, it's huge for a 39-year-old. And then $40 million plus of dead cap to trade him immediately after the season. Or should he retire immediately after the season? That's what we're looking at. All right. So I think it's possible. I'm not going to discount it. I don't know why he would leave $110 million sitting on the table through 2024. That seems like a bad business decision. But I don't think Aaron Rodgers does anything normal. So it's 100% possible that we get to this point. I just wanted to lay it out again with some confirmations that I was able to receive and put it back on Andrew Brandt, who, who had been saying this all along. This may look like a five-year deal, but A, two of those are fake, and B, the next two are options, and, and it's not team option, it's player option, and if Aaron Rodgers wants out after one year, whether it's trade me or I'm walking away from the game, he's going to have that ability, and the Green Bay Packers are simply going to have to eat it, <laughs> and that's a problem, but that's the price to pay for the quarterbacks, right? That's the kind of the theme of this show. If you want a great quarterback, you sometimes have to take a lot of, uh, you have to swallow a lot of pride, a lot of pills, and a lot of dollars, whether it's cap or cash. And that's a smooth transition into my final NFL point, which is is the salary cap real? I'm asked constantly. I see a lot of people talk about it, write about it, go on TV shows and try to capitulate it. Of course it's real. Of course it's real. And there are teams every single year that push up right against it. And it's there for a reason. It's there to have a ceiling. It's there for a barometer so that teams are spending enough, by the way. Right? There's a, there's a percentage point built into the CBA on a yearly basis over a, over a couple of year span that you have to spend X percent of the salary cap every single two, three years. That, that has shifted in this recent CBA. But it's there. It's what we were pushing for in Major League Baseball. You don't necessarily need a hard cap, but you have to have some kind of spending parameters. So, to me, that's the most important part of the salary cap is that there is a ceiling that then creates a floor, a barometer for teams to use to have to spend so that teams that are trying to go all the way down and tank can't go all the way down. There's still a level over a two to three year span that they have to spend. They have to bring in a guy here or there or pay somebody internally to keep up with the Joneses to some degree. But to me, that's the most important reason why the salary cap exists. Does the salary cap exist to squash player salaries? Yes. And many teams use that to their advantage, leverage it. We're going to run ourselves right up to the cap and then negotiate internally and say, oh, we don't have that much room, so you're going to have to play ball with us a little bit. And do, do you need any other example of the current salary cap situation in football? All right. The team ranked number 32 in cap space right now is the New England Patriots at a million dollars. Guess what? I say this every single June and July. Every single June and July. It's not the Saints, not the Eagles, it's not the Rams, all these teams that end, you know start the year in cap hell and get themselves not only neutral, but in healthy shape from a cap perspective because of all the work they do. It's the Patriots. And by the way, the team with the second amount of cap space is Houston, loaded with former Patriots executives right now in that front office not an accident. It's not an accident. Okay. It's just how those teams operate. Or that's the mindset that the Patriots have been operating out of for 20 years since the Brady organization. And Brady had to play ball. That's well documented. Julian Edelman played ball for a lot of years. You saw a lot of great players get pushed up out of that, off that roster because they wouldn't play ball. It's just how it works. And this time of year, they use the salary cap as negotiating leverage. Because they can. So how can the Patriots have $1 million and the Browns have $40 million of cap space? Because they want it that way. The Patriots want to have no space. Teams like the Raiders and the Browns and, and, and the Cowboys want cap space for whatever reason, whether it's rollover to next year, whether it's we still have some guys to sign, whether it's we're still looking at some free agents that may fall off before camp or during camp. There's a re- always reason to have cap space. But if you don't want it, you don't have to have it. You don't have to restructure that left guard. You don't have to, you know, relinquish a free agent here and there. And that's the point I want to get to the most is the discussion with the Rams right now, and I've, I've documented it a little bit myself. Obviously, the, the Aaron Donald situation, the Cooper Cup now situation has amplified what the Rams have been able to do. And it's not just this year, right? This is not new for them. What's not being talked about enough, and it's to their credit. Because they continue to win. They continue to get themselves in contention over the past three to four years. But what's not referenced enough with this Rams organization is that they are not just piling on superstars, they are losing as many as they are adding. And in fact, they're all calculated moves. And sometimes they're doing things six to 10 months early to set up their next move. And I'll give you a a very good example right here. When Jalen Ramsey came on board, it was at the trade deadline in October of 2019. Okay, not only did they add Jalen Ramsey, who we knew was going to go, and we knew one of the big boys was going to get him, but they had a preceding trade at the exact same deadline in in line. They moved Marcus Peters to Baltimore and brought back Kenny Young, the, the inside linebacker, at the exact same time, in succession. All right, and that okay, they're filling a hole they needed to do. No, no, no. no. Had nothing to do with 2019. Certainly, Jalen Ramsey was going to be an immediate upgrade. Okay. But Kenny Young, they were able to flip Jalen Ramsey's replacement, right? And Marcus Peters for an inside linebacker who then replaced Corey Littleton, who they let walk in free agency and got a comp pick back for that, that the year after that. They were already looking ahead to, to March at the October trade deadline of 2019. Then they traded Brandon Cooks. Then they they June 1st released Todd, Todd Gurley. They also lost Dante Fowler Jr. in that deal in that 2020 offseason, okay? I've got a list in front of me where every offseason since 2019, they have forfeited one way or another via trade, via release, via straight free agency that they didn't resign, at least three starters, at least. Just last year, 2021, when they acquired Matthew Stafford, they lost half their secondary to free agency. John Johnson, Troy Hill, okay? They lost their starting tight end and Gerald Everett. Obviously, Higby worked out. This past year, the one that we've all been referencing, where they bring in Bobby Wagner, they bring in Allen Robinson, right? They re- they obviously re-up Stafford, Donald, and Cook. And Cup, excuse me. But here's a list of the free agents that they lost. Vaughn Miller, Darius Williams, Austin Corbett, Odell Beckham Jr., maybe. And they traded away Robert Woods. Was it all starters? Okay. All starters. So there's damage here. It's not just their flipping salary cap and restructuring contracts. In fact, I did a piece on spotdret.com. They restructured one player, one this offseason Leonard Floyd, freed up 12 million of space. Now, their other restructures came in via extensions. Matthew Stafford saved 10 million in his restructure. Aaron Donald saved $2 million in his restructure. I guarantee you Cooper Cup saved saved money in his restructure as well, saved cap space, I should say. His $18 million cap hit's going down. You can you can put my name on that. It's happening. But there's always something. It's always a give and a take. And generally, that give and take has worked out in their favor because they've been prepared for it. It's not just a knee-jerk reaction. Okay. 2021, they traded Jared Goff away acquired Matthew Stafford. Same move, same move obviously. Every every ying has a Yang with this organization. So the salary cap is is real to them but it's a last resort. If they were really in salary cap trouble, there's plenty of more ways they can restructure contracts. Tons. Okay? They did a bunch of restructures last year to Jalen Ramsey and players like that, Tyler Hegbee. That's available to them. For them and for many teams, it's a last resort, just straight conversions. They would rather tinker with the roster. They've been one of the te- most trade heavy teams in all of football for five years, and that's why they're here. That's why they won a Super Bowl and are one of the favorites to win it again this year. That's why. Trades, okay? Acquiring their quarterback, acquiring Vaughn Miller and Odo Beckham midseason, a- getting rid of Brandon Cooks for a draft pick, okay? Getting rid of Robert Woods when they knew they could replace him in free agency. They're not sitting on their hands, and it has nothing to do with cap hell and salary cap conversions and void years. okay? I mean obviously that's part of this con- conversation. and then look, if we flip quickly to the Saints, it's almost exactly the opposite. okay What the Saints have lost over the past two, two off seasons is, is nuts. 13 14 starters over the past two off seasons, just flat out free agency. Gone. Can't re-sign you. We're doing everything we can just to get neutral. That's void years. That's conversion. That's what that's what constant restructuring, while trying to keep your roster together, can do to you. It can really get you into a into a pigeonhole. That's not the Rams. The Rams are fluid with the roster, which allows their cap to be as fluid as possible. That's it. That's the answer. Don't fall in love with anybody for more than two years. And if you do, continue to extend them so that the cap moves, cash keeps coming in, everybody's happy, and we can continue to keep this core together. That's how this works. That's why Brady's small contracts always worked out in in New England and it kept him happy. Fluidity. That's what the cap is. It's real, but it's extremely fluid. And yes, you're going to lose players, but if you are an organization that is as prepared as the Rams has been. Not only do you, are you ready for those losses and those sacrifices you have to make from a roster standpoint, you've already accounted for them before you even get to the part where you lose them. And that's the point I want to make with the, with the, off, the past four or five off seasons in LA. Absolute preparation for moves that they could kind of dictate and or just got lucky with. They were ready, they were prepared. They're willing to do all sorts of, of cap manipulation and contract manipulation as needed. And that's why they are where they are. All right, let's quickly talk some baseball because I got to get off this NFL kick here for a bit. Let's bring in Cousin Dan. All right, Dan, get me off this NFL uh, soapbox because it's been a dramatic 25 minutes here. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's lighten the load a little bit with some Major League Baseball. Question number one is, are the Mets the worst team in baseball now? I'm just kidding. Oh. I'm
0: just kidding. <laughs> I'm just... I know you're j you're a Jaden Mets fan, just waiting no. for the for the apocalypse.
1: I mean, they're playing good teams with a an injured roster. It's and it's June, so I can't complain yeah. too much. Or that's yeah, kind of they, like the can... right time to go through this hump, right?
0: Yeah, if they can get out of this period, I think totally. they're they're gonna clear sail. So
1: that is kind of a smooth transition though, right? Because the Mets are one of the top teams, at least top I'd say eight teams in this in this season so far. Was it easy in your in your findings here? To kind of identify buyers and sellers, or is that still a difficult process with six weeks to go here?
0: Um, it's definitely a difficult process for a certain chunk of teams, but um, I think the majority of the league, you can kind of. I'm sorry, maybe that's a little bit premature because I'm I'm kind of ruling out like the, the expanded playoffs with the wild right. card, so it's it's likely more teams will be buyers than sellers. Um, I think there are a number of teams that are like clearly in one bucket or the other, but mm-hmm. there is a good chunk that w- I, I kind of came up with some ideas for like, whether if they were going to sell or, or be buyers, right.
1: so. the middling teams. Right. So how about, yeah, exactly. how about we start here? Let's talk about the teams that went all in financially this off season. Right. Let's, I mean the Rangers, obviously the top of this list, over 600 million allocated to the, to this roster in terms of guaranteed salary. Where do they fall? Because they're underachieving, but there's some positive signs. I think you and I were never really happy with that roster as it was, but they are pot invested now. Are they just going to continue to buy until everything blows up or they win this thing?
0: Yeah, I like that you started with Texas because this is one of those in betweener teams that um, I kind of went into this uh, just expecting them to do more of what they did last year, which was um, sell off some veteran pieces. I I did see an MLB um, piece about how they could be, I actually might've been John Heyman talking about it. Hmm. Somebody was discussing how it's probably more likely that they'll try and add based, you know, to justify their offseason moves, even if they don't necessarily think that they're within striking range of the Astros, that they could at least be, yeah. um, you that's, know, a wild dangerous,
1: that's a dangerous recipe doubling down. You know what I mean? I mean, I understand that they're pot committed, but just adding more veterans generally doesn't work in this league. You know what I mean? You have to have, the right mix of homegrown core and then be able to drop those veterans in at the right time. And I just think they struck at the wrong time with Corey Seeger and Marcus Semyon, Don't you?
0: Um, I, I agree. Yeah. I think they just like,
1: I mean, what is, what, which prospect on that roster right now are you dying to see in person?
0: Um, mm. <laughs> i mean they do they do have a nice crop of young guys kind of coming up they do have some talent on. right but office, they're not here though roster is my point. you're right they're not here right. not, like
1: they weren't ready for 600 million dollars last year
0: no right. way it's that, that's the move was probably done a little bit premature but i do understand the circumstances mm-hmm. with full, first full season out of a lockout with in front of fans you know things like that played into this i i think and I don't necessarily think they regret that move, but I I, I agree with you that just to sum it up, that it was probably a year or two early in terms of those moves. Now, the the guys I included on this list, Nick Solak, yeah, um, for one, uh, or they have a number of middle infield prospects, um, that aren't all going to find playing time with the Rangers, um, over the course of the next few years. So, um, that was more of just like a baseball move kind of, um, sure. suggestion there, where like they could probably sell from an an area of depth, but the other guy included was Martin Perez, who is in the middle of a career year. And, um, he's an, he's a a impending UFA. And they did this last year with Kyle Gibson. The Rangers did where they sold, um, an impending UFA pitcher for a decent return leading up to the deadline. And I, 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 you know, yeah, he's gone. I I don't, yeah, you don't extend him. You
1: you, kind of sell him high and just kind of move on. Right.
0: Exactly. That's, that's
1: where I'm at. So. Yeah. All right, let's switch to the Cubs. They did a lot of damage last trade deadline, moving some big pieces out, kind of starting to rip that band-aid off. There's more, there's more names available. you know, I think Wilson Contreras, the catcher is one of the top trade candidates on all of baseball right now, but have they shown enough or at least shown something to the, to the effect of maybe we can kind of pause on, on really ripping it all off and try to rebuild on the fly a little bit more.
0: Yeah, that's a fair assessment. I, by all means, I think they're, they're sellers though. I, I, it's just a different kind of selling. It's not like gut it to the studs selling. It's more of just like, we're going to turn over players who aren't going to be on this roster when we're good again. Right. So, and I think they're doing a good job of that. Um, Mm kind of selling at the right point. They, they, they did actually better with the, the Rizzo Baez Bryant trades, than people give them credit for. Mm -hmm. Um, and we're going to start to see those pay off in the next couple of years here, but Um, In the meantime, I expect them to sell these veterans that, um, you know, are on expiring contracts that won't probably, you know, are entering an age where they likely will not be part of the long term plans in Chicago.
1: Okay, Boston, we've talked about them before. They've improved, you know, uh, they've at least shown signs, but you know, the division, we've talked about the division. This one really baffles me still. To to me, this one goes right down to the wire with what they're going to be because it's too early to assess the AL East even a little bit right now. The Yankees are just so damn dominant and and that's going to come back to earth a little bit at some point. But can Boston keep up then or at this point, if you had to guess for August 1st, are they selling three or four major pieces here?
0: I have kind of come around in recent weeks on them, and I hate to say it's like been aligned with their turnaround. But the more I squint, the more I can see a path to the wild card. Now I think the division is basically out of reach at this point. I I just don't think you're going to leapfrog the Rays, the Yankees, and the Blue Jays in front of them. Um, But I, I, you know, every time I look at the roster, it's it's one of the best offenses in the league, right? No question. And they do have a decent rotation. It's really just the bullpen that, that keeps people up at night. So I think, and the, and we've seen, it's not cheap at the trade deadline, but you can get relief pitching. Um, it, those guys are always available at, you know, impending UFAs that teams want to get rid of that aren't contending. So I, I, I think they're, they're quickly turning their focus towards the wild card. And I think that they will, uh, I am going to lean towards their buyers more than sellers. I I don't think they're going to just tear it apart.
1: I I agree because of who they are. I I think that they have done enough tearing down to really kind of ignite that fan base and, uh, and to do any more of it right now. Now look, moving on from JD Martinez, if you have to, because he's an impending free agent that doesn't move the needle too much, even though he's having a phenomenal year, you know, he's, he's hitting lightning in a bottle here for his next contract, but, I tend to agree with you, but I don't, I don't agree, Dan, that they have the right rotation. I think that's exactly why they're in the spot they're in right now. You've got, if I'm looking, I'm looking at the spreadsheet you put together. You've got a hell of a lot of starting pitching on this list. I mean, some real names here, some you'd have to very strongly overpay for, but fixing the bullpen just isn't that easy. You have to be you have to have guys that can graduate up to set up roles. You know what I mean? That That's usually what the good teams have happen come June, come July, come August is, Hey, we've well got this guy in the bullpen who's been so reliable. We're going to give him a bigger role. And then that turns into something that's successful in the postseason. I, I just feel like even the late season moves we, we see for relievers and certainly for closers, outright closers. When has that been like a slam dunk home run in the postseason in the, in that same year? You know what I mean? I mean, the Kimberl one's fresh in my mind, but I, I just think it's it's easier said than done, you know.
0: Uh, I I'll agree with that. Yeah, I think so. Uh, so, are, what you're saying is like you, it, it's going to be harder for them to address pitching than than I'm making it out right for sure. Yeah, Especially so, since
1: they're the fourth team in their division. <laughs> you know, you know, like everybody yeah, else is going to be clamoring for that same reliever, whoever it's going to be at that point. And right. so they're here, just not the here, sexiest option, you know?
0: Here's at least one option I have heard in, floated internally. Garrett Whitlock has yeah. been, um, you know, kind of pigeonholed into more of a starters role, but it's not like a full starter role. He's he's sort of splitting, um, you know, if he doesn't get too far into the game. So it, I have heard rumblings that they might prefer him in a high leverage situation or as the straight up closer, but they just can't afford um, to put him in that role. Bingo, so man. It, So I think maybe they, maybe he's the guy who moves the bullpen and you try and add like a Jose Quintana a long, or a Mike, Mike Miner. Totally. Yes. totally. Exactly. And so that's then, very
1: du- doable at the trade deadline.
0: Exactly. So then you have a, a rotation of Nate, Nate Evaldi, Michael Waka, Nick Pavetta, Rich Hill. Now, it's not sexy, but it will get you there if you need it. So if you can add one or two, you know, like a Mike yeah. Miner, one of the Cincinnati guys, anything like that, I think that might be the way they, they choose to address that. But I, I guess my point with the relievers is that there's always guys on the market, but you absolutely are right that those guys are typically expensive.
1: Yeah. We have to talk Angels. Um, man, we had such high hopes for this team. <laughs> the manager's out. I, I know it's shocking because of who he is and, and honestly the start they had, but somebody had to be accountable similar to the Phillies for just the stretch run. I mean, it, I guess, let me ask this question first. Do you agree with early June manager firings because of a slump? I mean, this is not an 18 week season, right? This is 162 games. It's a marathon. Teams are going to have their ups and their downs. Do you agree with Girardi and Madden out here?
0: Um, let's, let's split those two. Cause they're sort of unique situations. So first of all, Philly, Philly seems more like a Girardi was a scapegoat now. For the I, know, GM. I know. Yes, exactly. I, I, I think we've talked about how we don't really like the construction of that roster. Um, it's very top heavy. There's some big names, but, um, ample hole, you know, plenty of holes up and down that roster. Um, so to me, Pl- players have voiced concerns about Girardi. Mm. I know there's a lot of questions, even though, you know, um, like legacy baseball people tend to love Joe Girardi as a manager. Um, I think some of the, like the younger new, new school players are, are not as on board with his style, but um, regardless, I'm going to settle on that situation was more of, we put together a bad roster. Somebody has to, p- you know, pay the price. It's gotta be Girardi. And he, he wore it. he talked, you know, sure. he, he was, it, he knew it was coming. Let's just put it that way. Madden on the other hand, the more I have kind of dug into this, cause as you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty heavily invested in coaching changes for some reason, but yeah. um, <laughs> Joe Madden, it's Joe Madden has had a rap coming from Tampa um, as like an earlier adopter of analytics. But the more I dig into it, so even through his career with Chicago and continuing into LA, he sort of, he sort of uh, stagnated on that yeah. or plateaued in terms of like his development with the numbers, and he sort of reverted back to an old-school gut um, sort of managerial style. And the Angels' current GM, Perry Maniason, is anything but that. He is very mm. numbers-oriented. Um, he's trying to institute that at all levels of their organization. Um, he's an Alex Santhopoulos um, disciple from... Atlanta and Toronto. He was with him in both spots. Um, so, the more I have kind of dug into this, it sounds like it was largely just a um, difference of opinion in terms of analytics and how they're used. And we have to note that Joe Madden just wasn't that G- Perry Maniason's choice for a coach. So, sure. um, you know, that's always. No matter who the name is, that always is a factor in, in these type of moves. So um, I separate those two. I think Girardi was more of a scapegoat. I think Madden was more of a, um, we are genuinely looking to go a different direction with our coaching staff here, you know?
1: Because you assess the whole league here for this, this product, is there a stark difference between the National League and the American League right now in terms of one being stronger than the other?
0: it's no, no. Okay. To put it simply, no. I mean, they're both have their strengths and weaknesses and there's, yeah, I don't, I don't think they're. I don't at least sit back and look back, look at it and go, wow. But. Okay. Uh
1: um, I
0: tend to think the pitching is a little bit better in the, in the national league, but.
1: Which bad team is going to blow this thing up the most? If I give you the, the bottom four right now are the A's, the Royals, the Nats and the Reds, just based on, the 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 players that they have available the situations they're in from a franchise standpoint who do you think is going to be like the the cream of the crop we've got the guys come get them kind of kind of team
0: well oakland for sure i mean that's like the no-brainer they're they're gonna sell any even after all the
1: work they've already done you think it's montas and still a couple more guys
0: yeah for sure and it has to be if they've done if they've gotten it this far and aren't going to complete it then it's their own fault in my opinion um I sort of target like Montas is the pretty obvious one and he's probably going to go into the market as the premier pitcher, Mm -hmm. um, available. So the return there could be really big. Um, I really think they move on from Sean Murphy too. As I look down these contenders rosters, like the consistent reoccurring weakness on, on most of them is catcher and there's just a dearth of catchers around the league. Um, Sean Murphy provides offense. He's a former gold glove winner. I think he's like the perfect addition um, to any contender. And I think he's the kind of guy um, that could maybe get overpaid for sort of like the Jonathan Lucroy year where several teams that were in contention um, needed a catcher and, and it turned into a bit of a bidding war. So it
1: feels Yankees-ish to me. I had to guess right off the top of my head here.
0: (laughs) Yeah. He's one of the, he's definitely one of the, or that's one of the teams that I, that I have.
1: Similar to Texas, Seattle kind of went all in here. Is Seattle going to, are they going to pause because they are kind of built through youth more than they are the veteran side of it. They kind of got rid of some veterans over the past couple of years to precede themselves. In fact, I, I certainly like their approach more than I I like Texas right now in, in terms of their windows. Do they add a piece here just because they can, because they maybe have a surplus of youth or is it about, kind of reassessing this off season and seeing what can happen in 2023.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, they're definitely going to stick to the youth movement. I don't think they're going to be no buyers. Well, let me put it this way. Like I have a couple of new guys on this list, Mitch Haniger, Adam Frazier, both are impending UFAs. Those are the kind of guys that if they fall out of contention, I think they just have to go. Um, if, if there's people calling, um, Beyond that though, I, I mean, I don't think they're going to like make a lot of subtractions. I did include Paul Seawald on this just as like a valuable relief arm um, that has team control. He's the kind of player that could fetch you um, a big return historically, but um, that was sort of just like a stretch. I I don't, I don't necessarily believe that they're looking to deal a player like that right now, but um, I, this is the kind of team that has fallen short of expectations, still has a ton of talent in the pipeline and should should still be committed to that movement, but should also be selling um, anything, anything that they don't think will be there when they're better. And it's very similar to the Cubs. I'll compare them a lot to the Cubs, except Seattle is a lot closer in their rebuild, in my opinion.
1: Can't this be a team though, that it's the perfect time to overpay for that star pitcher right now?
0: Um, it could be, but that I still don't know if it, if it turns them into like a bona fide playoff contender. Do you know what I mean?
1: Because the kids just aren't, aren't experienced enough yet. They're just not ready. Yeah.
0: I mean, you, yeah, it's just like they're, you, you're, I, I would feel more comfortable in them making that like move next year or in this off season, but it uh, could it happened this year. Sure. They could try and accelerate everything. It's, it's been a disappointing season by all measures. I, I know yeah. there was like a lot of, uh, helium around them coming into the year. So.
1: Okay, so let's let's try to play, you know, super GM here, right? Houston with Verlander blah blah blah, right? I mean, Scherzer with the Dodgers to some degree. Who is that team that's going to that's going to be all in on a superstar. Doesn't have to be a starting pitcher necessarily, but generally that's what's translated the best here. Who is going to be that team that you think drops in the big player, whether it's a Montas, whether it's I don't know, uh, it's a weird list this year, but uh, maybe somebody late in the game. I guess it could be a player like a Josh Bell who can who can transform in the middle of a lineup. A Martinez out of Boston. Who's going to do it? Who's going to be that team that's kind of a sleeping giant waiting to pounce in August?
0: Good question. Um, I have an answer, I, by the way. Yeah, I well, yeah, go <laughs> ahead. You tell me who you're thinking. No, I no. have two teams in mind for this. But... All right,
1: go ahead. Go ahead. Lay out your cases and then we'll see if we <laughs> well, sync up here.
0: I think Toronto is like right on the fringe of just being of being there. And I think they really need to add a left-handed outfield bat. So I don't like, I'm not saying like a Juan Soto is even available, but I think that they try and make one more really aggressive move to sort of solidify that they've been kind of searching for it. They signed Brad Zimmer off or they traded for Brad Zimmer Mm -hmm. at, at the, when the guardians had a roster crunch. Um, is that an Ian Happ candidate? You think? So, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like they're going to go bigger, and that that player might not even be on this list. But um, that's one team I think goes for it. Also, I think Tampa. I think Tampa. Mm. They have plenty of ammunition in terms of like trading. They have plenty of arms. They always have a forty-man roster crunch. They might try and consolidate some of that talent and and flip it and now they tried it with Nelson Cruz last year it was rumored they were in on Freddie Freeman um in free agency and just got outbid it it, it feels to me like they want to make a major move so i'm i'm looking at that AL East and i think one of those teams is primed to try and try and go for it and that it makes sense
1: cuz they're they're going to be in the wild card dog hunt you know what i mean it's going to be a fight for them and they're not going to be sitting on top with some space between anybody they're going to have to fight the entire season so um, I'm looking a little bit further down the list and I'm, I'm in the national league and it's, by the way, it's a team that did this last year. Any guesses?
0: Um, I, I mean, Atlanta Bingo. is going to make moves. That's yeah, it. They're, Why wouldn't yeah.
1: they do this again? Why wouldn't they? I mean, they're three over 500 right now. You can see them kind of finding their legs a little bit. They don't have the pitching. They just don't. And Acuna hasn't been Acuna. So, To me, they need an arm and a bat. They added three major pieces last year. Why can't they do this again? You know what I mean? Uh, I realize that the prospect pool is probably a little bit thinner this year right now. And it may be a little bit more difficult to compete from a trade standpoint. But I have to put them as the team to, to, to at least attempt, especially with New York starting to slide a little bit. Philadelphia could fall off the wagon completely here. They're in. I mean, they're in. They're competing with the NL West, which is a monster again. But I I have a feeling that they're going to make splashy, splashy moves again.
0: Yeah, it's funny you bring them up because as I was kind of working this list, a a number of these like really fringe free agents that might just like be essentially free at the at the deadline, like Eddie Rosario last year, for instance, like I, I kept mentally going, oh, that's a perfect Atlanta move. That's a that's a perfect, you know player for Atlanta to get. And a lot of that is driven by, they just don't have a ton to offer either. Like their farm system has been pretty cleaned out in recent years. They have some, some guys to offer, but it's not like they can go make a, a huge splash in, in the trade market, in my opinion. So again, they're going to be doing targeting what they did last year, where they're just looking for the back um where there's tons of value. I mean, there's, there's like we said, there's going to be more sellers than, well, sorry, we, that might flip this year, but typically there's more players available than teams, you know, yeah. Willing to give big packages out. So you kind of got to strike while it's hot.
1: I think I know the answer to this and we can finish on this actually, before we, uh, proceed this with a, with a post. And by the way, this will be up on dot probably by the end of the week here. Dan's official, uh, kind of version one of major league baseball trade candidates here. um, the team the, the best team that also has the best trade assets so not so much teams they, uh, players they want to trade away but major league baseball slash prospects that they could package together for the best trade this this is in season the best team that could also put together the best trade package hmm to me it's a no That's brainer like... and it's because of a position you referenced earlier
0: um I, well, who who do you think?
1: I think it's Toronto, Dan, um, because they have nine catchers, <laughs> all of whom can play major league baseball right now. Because they are young, they, they, they could stand to bring a couple of players out of Buffalo, and or a current player on their roster like Abigio, and uh and move him off. And you'll find teams that want to take a chance on at least a couple of their names, and they are not they're not the team to beat yet, and they should be. They're they're that team. They're close. They're where Texas wants to be. And Texas isn't isn't even close to this roster. So I think they have the incentive and the motive and the players on the roster to make, if not one, two major, major moves right now to precede what they did last year.
0: Yeah, I agree. That was gonna be that that's one on my mind. Um, like like you sort of laid out right there. They have four Really good catchers on their 40-man roster. Uh, Danny Jansen did just break his finger yeah. yesterday. I don't know if you saw that. It's early, though. Um, but they have tons. of all, all four of their guys are, you know, uh, Jansen's controlled through 2024. Alejandro Kirk and Zach Collins, who they just traded for at the beginning of the year. But you could give up on your best catcher. 26.
1: You could give up on Kirk right now for trade purposes. And that's not going to take you down too much.
0: Oh, no, that's you know exactly what I mean? like the point. It's a
1: position that's movable all the time.
0: That's the that's the point I want to make exactly is that there's every single team is looking for catchers and Toronto has four of them mm-hmm. um and it seems almost like too obvious that they're going to use one of those guys at, to improve elsewhere now who knows what that move is but I agree with you that 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 they have a big move waiting for them I I do I do like that a lot I think Cleveland makes a splash also I know I'm a homer but No um, they're 500 it's they have a how ton do you not support and-
1: jose ramirez right now you have to support him after yeah, paying and him just, and what he's done for you for for six you know for two months here you have to do it
0: yeah the division is just it, it's wide open to me i mean chicago has a really easy schedule down the stretch as as we've laid out in previous podcasts before yeah. um and um Minnesota is kind of like on this youth movement, but they don't have a lot of room to maneuver from the rest of the year. In my opinion, I think Cleveland, the longer they linger in that 500 area, um, Francona gets those guys winning down the stretch typically. So I I think that they're, I think they're going to be in prime position. Um, this is sorry. I should also lay out too. even if whether they're in or out of contention, I, I like them as active in the trade market because um, they have a 40 man roster crunch every single year as well. Um, they've they already done can... a lot of
1: selling as well. I mean, they had a yeah, big exactly. sell a year they... ago. They've did some DFA work to really clean some cash off this year. They've already kind of done their, their tear down. It, it's, it, it was going to be a pause year in my opinion. I think that's how I kind of assess them, but they're playing too, too well and they've got too much star power right now. Um, kind of formulating to just sit on their hands in my opinion.
0: Yeah. A ton of middle infield prospects that are all going to, Right. reach the majors at the same time so this is this is another one of those like baseball move situations where i think that they could subtract one of those guys um it's not going to hurt their system long term in any way and um, they could address some some short-term needs. so i like i like toronto and i like cleveland as two teams um that have ammunition that should be in a situation to make a big move
1: one last thing i, I know i said that before at what point of the season did the Colorado Rockies find out that they made another gigantic error, <laughs> right? Cause the first one was Arenado, and they completely botched that. But then they went on the spending spree this offseason as if to say, look, we are, we like who we are, you know, I, they're sellers, Dan. And they spent a lot of money to become sellers. At what point in time do they have to start ripping this thing off again? Mm. I mean, they extended like five players
0: and yeah, chris and bryant the, so i mean the chris bryant thing is just so puzzling to me mm-hmm. i mean i'm actually okay with some of the other deals that they like like if they identified kyle we've talked about this if they identify kyle freeland as a guy that you know like the pitch mix works there he wants to be there etc i don't have A huge problem with them identifying that player and going after him. But like the Chris Bryant thing, like you just you just paid to get rid of Arenado, and now you paid to bring in Chris Bryant, who has like the power, all the numbers, the injury concerns, all that stuff has been going in the wrong direction over the last few years. So why he was the guy that you wanted to commit that money to is and not Arenado or Trevor Story is just I don't know, man. I can't make that stuff make sense. The other stuff I can at least justify, even if we don't agree with the thesis behind it, you know, but I, the Bryant trade is, is just, it stumps me.
1: The whole team stumps me. I can't believe, I couldn't believe what they were doing when they did it. They did have a solid start out of the gate, but you know, we've seen a lot of bad teams have decent runs. They're going to be bad. I mean, they're going to be near the bottom of this national league when it's all said and done. There's no question in my mind. And and I just don't know how you justify the hundreds of millions that they spent. I re- I just can't do it. I, at least the Reds aren't even trying, in my opinion. You know what I mean? At least the Nationals know exactly what they are, and they're going to sell two more pieces and at least and get out of this unscathed. You, you know, they're, they're the glaring team at the bottom of a league right now that has this payroll and future payroll that just doesn't justify the means. So I don't get it. It's not like they had this unbelievable core of youth that they, that was re- ready to graduate into the major league baseball re- level. They're still adding like weird veterans to plug and play and things like that. It's, it just seems so mismanaged. I can't even stand to look at it.
0: <laughs> yeah. And they continuously have player development issues too. They, they yeah. have not developed anyone. I mean, it, it's obvious, but it, it, it is difficult in cores to develop pitchers or attract any pitchers there, but they, they need, I don't know. The The front office has been in in place for a long time. I just like, it feels like we're just treading water with the same, the same thing here. So, and why they chose to commit to that group of players, I'm yeah. not, I'm not on board with, but I guess I can at least squint and, and see the reasoning, but yeah, I don't, I don't like this. <laughs> no,
1: it's a weird, it's just the, that one team that stands out like a sore thumb to me. Everybody else makes sense where they are, you know, give or take a couple of spots in the standings, but, They just, uh, financially speaking from a business standpoint, they don't belong where they are right now. They are, they are acting like somebody that they're not. So, um, okay, good stuff. Let's get this online so we can, uh, we can detail some of these players a little bit more and we'll continue to track the movement, right? Because if the angels continue to slide their conversation changes, some of these teams on the bottom could sneak up a little bit. I feel like Miami's about to make a little bit of a run here. They've got some real star power that is starting to show its face. Philadelphia is a middling team. And we talked about Atlanta as well, who could go up or down here based on what kind of moves they make over the next six weeks too. So we'll continue to track this. Good stuff, man.
0: Awesome. Yeah. We're, uh, we're, we're doing that season long odds um, yeah. series Divisional on the stuff. website. And we're going to start to really incorporate some of this trade talk a little bit more into that because um, you know, these teams that might be lingering in, in you know, in second place or, or have the second best odds, um, but we think are in prime position to strike with a the trade. They could leapfrog those teams in front of them. So we're going to kind of shift to, in to incorporate this kind of talk into that series a little bit more. Right. In, in layman's terms, weeks, right? So. It's
1: it's which which teams can acquire a guy that puts them into legitimate division contention, right? And then who? And then how do we bet on those teams before it happens?
0: <laughs> exactly. Yep. Yep. Exactly.
1: All right, man. Good stuff. All right. Thanks. All right. My thanks to Cousin Dan. Always good talking baseball, especially midseason when things are starting to heat up literally and physically. My thanks to The Athletic. Visit theathletic.com slash SpotTrack, S-P-O-T-R-A-C. Get yourself 40% off that first year subscription for Scott Allen. My name is Mike Giannetti. Thanks for listening to this edition of the SpotTrack Podcast.